Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today, Dr. Glenn Fox and I will be discussing his long-standing interest and in research on property rights. Glenn is an agricultural economist at the University of Guelph. He was recently honored as a fellow of the Canadian Agriculture Economic Society, and his fellow address was recently published in the Canadian Journal of Agriculture Economics. This address will be linked to this podcast. Glenn, welcome to Fair Talk. Thanks, Brady. In your paper, you point out that many longstanding controversies in agriculture and natural resource policies are really debates about the nature of property rights. That's the issue that I want to tackle in today's podcast, but before I do, I wonder if there's some kind of story or anecdote that you can give that kind of sets the stage for our listeners. I started working on this topic about 20 years ago, actually, Brady, with one of my master's students named Mike Ivey. And Mike and I were interested in a topic which had uh, become sort of uh, visible or had, had uh, emerged in importance in the late 1980s and the early 1990s on the question of when or under what circumstances does a regulation become so costly or so burdensome to a landowner to become the equivalent of a taking, to become tantamount to expropriation? And so we started to read uh, legal literature, economic literature, read some case law, and we very quickly were confronted with a paradox. And the paradox was that most of that literature, whether it was being written by economists or by lawyers or by political scientists or ethicists, dealt with a, a small number of cases typically that had gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. They used apparently the same words and concepts, but when they got to the punchline, this critical question, does regulation constitute a taking, the answers were all over the map. And we had a great deal of difficulty figuring out why, when there's only so many cases and they appear to all be using the same words, that the interpretations or the conclusions could be so divergent. And after staring, this, staring at this for a while, uh, we realized that there was something else behind the scenes. And the something else behind the scenes was that each of the authors was invoking a different theory of property rights. And initially, we identified three different theories of property rights. Uh, subsequently, uh, we've refined that, and uh, I now have a list of five theories of property rights that I think exist in work that economists do and also that uh, legal theorists do. And the five are uh, classical liberalism, uh, pragmatism, utilitarianism, legal positivism, and then modern libertarianism. Now, in, in, in the regulatory takings situations in the United States, there's this reference to the Constitution, so in the, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. In, mm -hmm. in the Canadian context, is, is there something like the Fifth Amendment there? That, that's a good point. The reason that this word takings came up uh, and the reason it's in this literature is because of the, the one clause referred to as the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. There is no equivalent to a takings clause in U.S. in Canadian sorry constitutional law. There is another paradox, and this is still something that puzzles me today, and I don't have a good answer to this, is that while there is a takings clause in the U.S., and there is not a takings clause in U.S. and Canadian constitutional law, the practice has generally been 
in Canada when regulations have been found to be excessively burdensome that property owners were compensated, whereas the practice in the United States under a takings clause has been generally that property owners have not been compensated when they've been subject to uh, certain types of regulations. So that's a bit of a mystery yeah. to me. But I mean, I think one of the big, in, in, in sort of in our area, one of the things you hear referenced a lot is this crow rate subsidy. And that, that's an example of where farmers or, or landowners were ultimately um, compensated for, for, the, for, the, for the fact that their guarantee of basically lower shipping rates was taken away by an act. Is that something that has, comes up in, in your understanding of this topic and kind of contrasting the U.S. situation or the, with, with Canada? I think that's a related development, but it's really somewhat different from the regulatory takings. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Crow rate, which was, were these grain transportation subsidies off the prairies, those subsidies meant that the price of grain at the farm gate in the prairie provinces was high was higher than it otherwise would be because essentially those farmers were price takers. So whatever price they got was the world market less the transportation costs. If the transportation was subsidized, then their price went up. So grain farmers had a higher price. Livestock producers in the prairies were at a disadvantage because their feed costs were higher. So when the decision was made to phase out these crow rate uh, subsidies, there was compensation ultimately that was paid to, to farmers because of um, this sort of entitlement that had emerged, uh, to, particularly to grain farmers, that they had had that built into their cost structure. And really, I think for sort of reasons of political expediency, uh, the government said, uh, we need to get away from this policy and we recognize that there are people whose livelihood has been helped by this policy and who will be hurt when we take it away, but we're going to take it away, so we'll compensate them uh, for that. The regulatory takings issue is really something quite different, and maybe an example of a wetland policy might be an example. So, so you think of a farmer who's got a wetland or a marsh uh, on his or her property, uh, then there's some policy measure that designates that as some sort of protected area uh, under a wetlands protection policy. Once that designation is imposed, then that restricts what the farmer could do. Up until that point, maybe the farmer could drain the wetland and turn it into a, a muck gardening uh, agricultural operation. Well, now that option's off the table, and the farm is arguably worth less than it would have been because the option to do that has been removed. And so the farmer might say, my farm was worth a million dollars before, now it's worth half a million dollars. Uh, I need to be compensated for the imposition of that, that regulation to protect the wetland on my farm. So just to make sure I've got it straight, in, in Canada, if, if, you, if the government compulsory takes the land, actually takes it, then there's the tradition of compensation. But if the question in the, or the line that you've been kind of working on is, when you change the economic value or the market value of something through regulation, then at what point does that constitute something that should be compensated for? And of course, that's a big debate in in in, in the U.S. So you know, literature examining Supreme Court decisions, and it's still in tension. And kind of your observation of things that have gone on in Canada. Let's take a, a couple of cases that you think that you cover a number of actually applied situations in, 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 in the Canadian context to examine the origin of property rights and how that helps illuminate the controversy around different natural resource issues. Let's take a couple of those and maybe 
just illuminate the this idea of the origins of property rights being very helpful in, in illuminating aspects of that controversy. Well, one of the examples that I understand you've done a previous podcast on this subject already, but one of the long-standing controversies in Canadian agricultural policy has to do with the wheat board. And under the framework developed by federal legislation for the prairie provinces, producers of certain types of grain had to sell that grain to the wheat board. It was called a central desk selling agency. It was the monopoly buyer, the monopsony buyer uh, that was then uh, tasked with the job of marketing that grain, uh, particularly to export markets. Uh, there are n- numerous sides to that debate, but I think two of the sides that I think illustrate these different property rights are, on the one hand, some farmers and some agricultural economists and some people uh, at the wheat board uh, argue essentially a utilitarian theory of property rights. Uh, and the utilitarian theory of property rights says that an arrangement, a policy, an institution is a good policy or a good institution if it maximizes the sum of utilities in some net sense, it maximizes the net benefits for everybody that's affected by the action. And so the, the utilitarian pro-wheat board argument would be that farmers on net gain, even though they've had this restriction on their ability to sell grain to any customer that they choose, because of the operations of the wheat board, because of countervailing market powers or uh, economies of size or scale or whatever. Uh, and so there's a net gain, even though some individual farmers might be disadvantaged. And so now, that would be the utilitarian perspective. And, the, you know, in the, in the previous podcast, we discussed this a bit and we look at our own profession, agriculture economics. And its debate about whether or not the wheat board was able to uh, increase net returns to farmers. And so that would be an example of our literature, which you characterize as being kind of utilitarian in origin. Yes. And, and when I'm saying that there are these different theories of property rights, it's not to say that there aren't what I'll call intramural contests within each theory of mm-hmm. property mm-hmm. rights as to whether or not a particular policy or a particular action uh, is a good one or not. And certainly in the agricultural economics literature, there have been uh, some researchers have said, no, there's not a net gain in utility, and others have said, yes, there is a net gain in utility. But what's common to all of them is the utility scale and this idea of adding up the benefits accruing to the winners and subtracting away the harms uh, imposed on the losers and coming up with some sort of net calculus from that. An alternative perspective, and I think that some of the farmers in Western Canada who protested and some ultimately went to jail over this uh, over the, the, the wheat board's uh, monopsony on uh, grain purchases, took more either a classical liberal or a libertarian point of view. And, and their argument went something like this. We own our own labor. We own the land. We own the equipment. We bought the seed. Uh, and it was the combination of all of those things that we own that went into the production of the grain. And now we own the grain. And one of the prerogatives of ownership is we should get to choose to whom we sell the grain. And having an institution like the Wheat Board, utility calculations notwithstanding, is a violation of a property right that a modern libertarian or a classical liberal would say because of, you know, I produced it with my inputs, with my resources, with my labor, then I should have the prerogative to sell it to whomever uh, I choose 
and therefore the institution is a violation of those property rights. And unfortunately, those two perspectives kind of pass each other like two ships in the night. We talk past one another, failing to recognize that they're fundamentally different ethical theories, they're fundamentally different property rights theories that are involved in the controversy, and we end up with these skirmishes about your utility calculations versus my utility calculations versus my rights, and somehow we're not really understanding what's at the core of the disagreement. That's interesting because in, in some cases there could be convergence. In other words, you could do a utility calculation and at the same time it could be consistent with the libertarian, but it also there could be divergence. And, and in this case, there was a divergence between those two. And I, and I think you're right that we often don't spend time looking at the nature of that controversy in, in the articles that we that we write. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the, different, the five different theories that I've uh, enumerated earlier uh, can reach the same conclusions under some circumstances. Uh, but I think it's important to be clear on the process th through which we're reaching our conclusions because I think a lot of the times when we disagree, it's not clear why we're disagreeing. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there are easy cases. If all the theories point in the same direction, then there's usually not much of a controversy. There's not much of a fight. But that's interesting because that's almost like there's this Pareto ethical superior situation. If you can get all the ethical theories kind of coming together, then you can, you can argue at least from that. So that's an interesting point. Well, but, but you have to be lucky. That's kind of like winning the lottery. <laughs> Right. It's, it's a wonderful outcome if you can get it. But in a lot of practical cases, we don't have them line up like that. And the different theories will give us quite different answers. Now, that's the utilitarian position versus the libertarian position. And, and are there other parts of the, the theories that fit into this example? Or maybe, maybe it makes sense to go into another example if you want to illuminate the other Well, another example that's gotten a fair amount of attention recently in Ontario and in some other jurisdictions, uh, is the question of raw milk consumption. Uh, and uh, most milk goes through a pasteurization process, but there are some people for a variety of reasons that would like to have, uh, to, like to be able to consume uh, raw milk. So pasteurization, we're just heating, he basically heating up the milk to kill certain that's, bad things, that's right. bad bacteria. Uh, and sort of the long-standing public health argument, which essentially is a utilitarian argument, says uh, that there's a net gain in utility, there's a net benefit, even though it does impose some costs, there's a net benefit to pasteurization and everybody should drink pasteurized uh, milk. Uh, and th there's also a legal positivist argument that says currently in the province of Ontario and in many jurisdictions, uh, it is illegal for a farmer to sell raw milk uh, commercially to, uh, to a customer. Okay? So there's a, a legal positivist argument which says that's what the law is, uh, and, uh, and so that's, that should be what, uh, what, is, uh, uh, what is followed. Um, but there is a case recently in Ontario where a farmer, uh, and let me back up a little bit, yeah. because one of, the, one of the important aspects from a legal positivist point of view is that there is an exception to the rule, and the exception is that a farmer can drink raw milk from his or her own cows. Uh, and that's a long-standing exception, but you can't sell it uh, to somebody else. So there was a farmer in Ontario who introduced what he called a cow share program so that people who were not part of his family uh, could buy shares in a cow, uh, and then they were cow owners, uh, and he argued that they would then be eligible to drink raw milk from the cows that they own as a cow share uh, in this cow share arrangement. And there was a court case uh, about that. 
So, um, uh, uh, and that court case uh, is going to be uh, appealed apparently um, to uh, to uh, to higher levels. The farmers, and I think the cow share owners, who have generally been um, unsuccessful in making this uh, this case that they're trying to make tend to come at it more from what I would call a classical liberal or modern libertarian point of view, which goes back to this ownership. I own my own body. I own my own cows. I can go into a contractual arrangement with somebody else to share cows. And if I choose to consume milk from my cows that's unpasteurized, then that's my business and it's not anybody else's business. The utilitarian public health argument tends to uh, hinge on this uh, estimation or calculation of net benefits. So there, there would be costs to non-pasteurization of maybe diseases, and those diseases would have to be treated. And so by pasteurization, we eliminate that and save, uh, save those, uh, those costs. One of the things that, that comes out uh, of your paper is this discussion of legal positivism, which has always been, uh, and we've talked about this before, so I'm always interested in this issue where uh, I think to a legal positive, they might just define property as the word given to a protected set of interests. Or I'm just thinking of phrases from someone like Warren Samuels who might say property uh, is protected not because it's property, but it's property because it's protected. Mm -hmm. And in our discussions, you've always had a somewhat different, I think, perspective than that. And I wonder if we can just talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I think that's a very good recapitulation of the legal positivist theory of property rights, uh, and that is that uh, legal positivism, and I think also uh, pragmatism and utilitarianism, uh, characterize rights in general as political. Uh, and that is people have rights because the legislature uh, granted them those, those rights. In contrast with classical liberalism or modern libertarianism, which tend to view rights as pre-political. That is, you have rights because you're human, not because a legislature or a king or some other uh, political organization declared that you had those rights. But certainly legal positivists say that your rights are whatever, in the Ontario context, whatever the legislature says they are. Uh, and if you can point to chapter and verse in current uh, statutes and laws in Ontario that say you have a particular right, then a legal positivist says you have that right. And if you can't point to that chapter and verse, then a legal positivist would say that you don't have that right. Sometimes legal positivists use the term presumptive right, which is you think you have a right, but in fact, there's no legislative authorization that declares that you have that right. Therefore, it's presumptive. You don't really have it because the legislature hasn't granted it to you. And how does that contrast with the, the Lockean or almost the natural law position that you talk about a bit in your paper? The, the classical liberal and the modern libertarian views tend to be based on natural law, which is views rights as pre-political. That is, you have rights because you're human, and that would exist even if you were the only human being uh, on the planet, uh, and there was no organization called a government or a state or a legislature or, uh, uh, or what have you. Uh, and so those are, are sort of rights that we acquire uh, by virtue of being human. They are because we exist, uh, we have these uh, rights. And uh, John Locke was one of the uh, leading proponents of that, uh, that particular view of the origin of human rights. Uh, and then he uh, devoted quite a bit of attention to um, 
an explanation of how these rights become rights to property, which is a claim of authority over something in the external world, external to my body. So if I say I have a property right in this pencil, that's something in the external world. I'm claiming authority over this pencil uh, by virtue of, 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 of a Lockean rights uh, claim. So when we look at, you know, you've given two examples, we could talk about agriculture zoning or things like green belts. All of these things tend to be influence the debate by discussions about whose right is it to decide how property should be used. Do you see, coming from your own research and your own experience and your paper, do you see a, a research agenda or an extension role for academics or even maybe for government people in using the kind of work you've done um, or plan to do to illuminate the issue further? What should a graduate student listening to this in, you know, this this podcast think about as a research area or what should a, a government official listening to this perhaps think about, okay, well, I'm looking at this issue in Ontario. How might I, you know, use this information? I don't know whether it's a research issue uh, or a research agenda or uh, an outreach uh, agenda, but I think um, it would be good if we could have a higher level of awareness of first, the existence of these different theories of property rights and an ability to recognize them in the wild. I, I teach these in some of the courses that, uh, that I offer, particularly my undergraduate courses here at Guelph. And by the end of the semester, I tell students that my essay on five theory of property rights is kind of like Peterson's field guide to the birds. When you go out in the woods, I, if you were to study Peterson's field guide to the birds, you should be able to recognize the different species of birds when you see them in the forest. And what I hope my students would be able to do is to be able to recognize these different theories of property rights when they encounter them in policy discussions, in research documents, in speeches, and uh, even in things like movies, because uh, there's a lot of popular culture that also makes reference to, to some of these things. So that's sort of an awareness thing. Um, I think the research agenda is to start to focus on what I'll call the comparative analysis or comparative evaluation of the five theories. Okay? If we don't even know we have five different theories and we're having these policy, apparent policy debates over things that look like facts, and they're not really about facts, they're about the five theories, then, then we need to at least be aware that there are these different theories. But okay, once we get to awareness, then what? Because if we're having this debate among theories, then we have to be able to evaluate, we have to be able to compare. And so one of the things I talk about at the end of my paper is I kind of start to sketch what I call a comparative evaluation of the five theories of property rights. And I think that that's, I think, an important research agenda item for not just applied economists, I think uh, legal scholars, political scholars, even ethicists. We need to take more seriously the evaluation, even to think about what the criteria are. How, how are we going to measure the performance? What's the evaluation scale going to be uh, to measure these, uh, these five theories and to decide, you know, is there one theory that always dominates? Or does one theory work well in one set of circumstances and not work so well in another set of circumstances? Uh, then we need to figure out, well, what, what's the distinction between the sets of circumstances that influence the applicability of one theory? Uh, versus another. So I'd say that's where, where I see the research agenda going uh, on this, uh, this topic. And 
A few years ago, uh, Pear Pinstrup Anderson, who was the, giving the presidential address at the American Agricultural Economics Association, really challenged our discipline, uh, which tends to be a very utilitarian-oriented discipline in terms of its uh, implicit theory of property rights. And he said, we need to be aware and we need to uh, understand non-utilitarian theories. And so I see my essay as really responding to that challenge that he made and kind of fleshing out in more detail what the non-utilitarian alternatives are. And then we need to figure out as ag economists or as natural resource economists, how do the, what are the implications of these different theories for the types of policy analyses that we typically do in our work? Well put. We will have links up to Glenn's paper and additional links and references to issues discussed in this podcast. Glenn, thank you so much for speaking to us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.